Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick, which you know if you've been following this podcast for any length of time. Now, in this episode, I will be looking at the final of three stories Dick wrote or published in 1980. One he actually wrote in 1980, it wasn't published until 84. Um, but, um, you know, generally, the, these three stories were all written around the same period of time in, in 1980, and, and some were published around that time. This particular story is Ratavara's Case, which is a, a fairly good story. It's, it's not my favorite of his late tales, but it has a lot to like in it. It's a really good example of Dick not just being religious for religious sake, but ask, actually asking good science fiction questions about religion, particularly diversity of religions in different among aliens and how religions will interact in a very in you know in different contexts. One of my favorite stories that that sort of does this is James Blish's novel, A Case of Conscience, which deals with the question of, of alien life and salvation, right? And it's really from a Christian point of view. Right, and did Jesus' sacrifice provide salvation to alien life forms? And this is a really fascinating question. And I actually think the Catholic Church has come out with some theology or doctrine dealing with this possibility. Um, but I think it's something that science fiction could deal with even a little bit more. I, you know, I, even like a series like Babylon 5, which I liked, I haven't gone back and watched it for many, many years at this point, but I liked how they tried to deal with religion and alien religions in interesting ways. But actually, if you look at it more closely, the creators, the writers, I guess there's just the one writer of that series, he was actually basing those religions pretty much on earth religions. You know, there was, you know, the same kind of traditions and cultures and polytheism or monotheism. It's kind of, you know, there's no other ways, uh, you know, they look like earth religions, just kind of alienified in a way. And I guess that's, that showed a kind of a limit of imagination, but it's, I guess it's really hard to speculate on what a completely, totally alien religion would, would look like. And I'm not sure Dick fully succeeds here, but he is playing with this idea of, of, Christi uh, you know, of Christianity and the afterlife and, and how different aliens might approach the concept of God and the concept of religion. And that I very much just appreciate, if, if for no other reason than that it's interesting, and I'm glad Dick was trying to do it. So, Ratavara's case, um, originally published in Omni in October 1980. Um, it can, you know, notice he stopped basically publishing in science fiction magazines in these later stories. And if they seem a bit off the wall at times, they don't seem to really fit into kind of classic science fiction tropes. You know, I think maybe one of the last stories of his to actually do that would be something like a little something for us, Tempionauts or Electric Ant or something like that. You know, after that, he wasn't really publishing in science fiction journals that often. He was publishing in a diversity of, of different places, Playboy, Omni, 
etc. So I think Omni was was actually more like a science journal, right? It 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 may have published science fiction from time to time, but it, it wasn't like one of the main pulp um, magazines. They they may have been pretty much all dead by the 1980s, actually. I'm not sure sure how many of the pulp magazines from the golden era actually survived into 1980. Maybe they were down to just the handful we have now. But anyways, I, I remember Omni as more like a science science uh, journal that maybe had some science fiction. But uh, I could be wrong. Anyways, uh, this story, um, if you don't have that old October 1980 issue of Omni, it may be anthologized, but I don't know of any books where you can find it the best place to, to find it will be in the collected stories of philip k dick the fifth volume um it's only an eight page story it's pretty short it's a quick read but anyways let's let's get into the plot summary and then we'll we'll talk about the kind of the theological ramifications of rotavara's case so we got beans from proxima which is kind of an old dick trope just throw some aliens or some other creatures from proxima it was either Proxima or Ganymede or Titan or places like that. Those are, those are the, the planets Dick liked to go to. I think um, in Clans of the Alphane Moon, that was also Proxima. So anyways, beings from Proxima report on a malfunction that caused the deaths of three technicians in a science globe monitor that was monitoring magnetic fields. They send a robot and learn that one of the three quote-unquote Earth persons that were there could still be saved. Agneta Raghavati's life was saved. That's her name. Um, the one who could be saved was saved by using her body as nutrients to keep her brain alive. This, they, they took this action in accordance with interplanetary agreements that existed. Basically, you have to provide some aid and save lives if you can. When the Earth persons were informed of what was done, they were furious and blamed the approximations. Uh, now, the approximations is a name, a kind of pejorative name by the earthlings given to the Proxima people due to their non-corporeal existence and their home system, right? Prox, a prox. And basically they were saying you're overstepping your, your grounds by keeping Radatava alive. So here we have a basic plot that you, of course, have seen perhaps in stories dealing with medical ethics, right? And where a doctor saves someone's life and then for whatever reason the religions don't want him to keep them alive. This is... Usually it's earthlings interacting with some kind of alien, alien culture that this takes place in. But in this case, it's the earthlings who were offended that this person's life was saved. And perhaps it has a lot to do with the way her life was saved, not necessarily the fact that it was saved, right? Now, Radhavari sees the bodies of the two other technicians, Travis and Elms. Since she is going back in time, she soon sees them alive. They see a figure who they identify as Jesus Christ on their ship, then Radhatavar explains that the other two to the other two people who now appear to her as alive are actually dead. Elms, who is a Christian, starts to explain his faithfulness to him, and Elms tries to go with Christ. Now, meanwhile, the beings from Proxima observe with members of the Earth Board of Inquiry Ratavara's brain. Now, apparently everything that just was going on with where Ratavara interacted with Travis and Elms and they have this experience with Christ. This is all just in her brain, right? Because essentially Ratavara is just a brain. The approximations want to, the prox people, want, not people, prox aliens, want to observe her as a window into the afterlife. And the earth people's experience of a personal savior. So they're kind of interested in kind of what her religious experiences are and they, they kind of approach it more scientifically. They talk to the Earth Board of Inquiry 
and the representatives of the Earth Board of Inquiry, and they talked them into implanting into Rod Tavar's brain the Proxima conception of the afterlife, which would, and then they could test what would happen if she had a very different conception of the afterlife in her brain. Now, basically, she's just a brain on the jar at this point, so fairly um, easily subject to whatever experiments they want to give her. Now, meanwhile, Elms is still trying to talk the um, the figure who he thinks is Jesus Christ into taking him and the others with him. Rottavari discusses this with Travis, and suddenly the form of the figure changes, and horrified and horrified Elms and Rottavar observe the Christ figure eat Travis. So I guess this is after the Proxima inject their concept of the afterlife into Rottavar's brain. The Earth is horrified at what they see, but the Proxima being suggests that this is just the opposite of the religion that the earth people have. They are actually horrified by a religion that allows the worshiper to consume a god rather than the other way around. As plasma beings, the Proxima see the afterlife as being consumed by the material god. This experiment is ended and both sides learn they cannot hope to one understand one another and the foundation of their misunderstanding and their inability to communicate is based on their very, very different conceptions of religion and specifically their very different conceptions of an afterlife. Okay, so what to say about this brief little tale? Well, with Ratavara's case, we see Dick again exploring religious themes, as he was common to do in his, in his late career. In this case, we have a pretty interesting speculation about the nature of religious belief and how that many uh, contribute, how religious beliefs may contribute to a fundamental difference of opinions and worldviews between species. The approximations are plasma beings, so they see nothing odd or immoral about keeping Radatarva's brain alive, because essentially as plasma beings, they are essentially disincorporated brains. They don't see the use for the body, and they don't understand the, the need for a body for an existence. Now, that's straightforward enough and kind of interesting, actually. And that could be the foundation of an entire story where they, you know, they could actually then explore to what degree is just having a brain enough to have an exist. You can almost have a Star Trek style court case, right, where two sides debate whether, you know, have being a brain in the jars being alive or not or whether humans require limbs and a body to, you know function it's almost like if if you account for mind-body dualism how much do you need the body if existence is in the brain right i think therefore i am it's not i do therefore i am right i guess the transhumanist point of view shares this right that you can replace body parts with machinery and still be essentially human right maybe even replacing parts of your brain with with that so essentially what we are is a mechanical device that's really housed in the brain right the body is can be adapted and transformed without necessarily taking away our essential humanity. So they don't see a use for the body. Um, but I think that's an interesting, that could be the foundation of a whole story. But then we get into these theological consequences of this, and, and they're much more profound and, and much more interesting. The approximations as energy beings invert the relationship between worshiper and God. In Christianity, God becomes flesh and worshipers consume him in a communion. The result of this is an afterlife where the soul exists in a non-corporeal state. In the Proxima religion, God does not, you know, is not cons God does the consuming with the approximation afterlife, apparently corporeal, right? Which is the opposite of their life, right? In their life, they're non-corporeal. So in their afterlife, they would be physical and then consume, to, you know, for their God to consume them, they almost have to be physical. And this is, the exact, of course, the exact opposite of how 
Christians see the afterlife, right? They seem going from physical to non-physical. And of course, I know there's some, or like early Judaism and early Christians may have not agreed with that. They may have believed in bodily resurrection. Of course, there isn't Jesus's body is not on earth. Under Christian theology, it goes up to heaven. So this idea of bodily resurrection is there. But most Christians you talk to today accept that the body's on the ground and, you know, it's some kind of spirit that goes up to heaven. So the afterlife is a simply then a projection of what they do not have in life. And here's a, here's a quote from the story. In terms of the basic relationship to God, the earth rays held a diametrically opposed view from us. This, of course, must be attributed to the fact that they are a somatic race and we are plasma. They drink the blood of their God. They eat his flesh. That way they become immortal. To them, there's no scandal. To them, there's no scandal in this. End quote. As this makes clear, the goal of the Proxima religion is the end of the immortality of life. Right? So they're immortal plasma beings, so their afterlife must be the, the end of existence, which requires being corporeal and being consumed by a god. This story is better on the ramifications of cross-cultural communications than on any real theology, I suppose. Um, I think, this is my opinion of him, that he's a much better sociologist than he is a philosopher or a theologian. And, and I know I'm running counter to most Dick fans who think he's really a, he excels at us as a theologian or as a philosopher. I, I don't really see that. I think he's really good at recording society around him, right? If you want to understand 1950s America in sub- suburbia, just read a Dick story, and, and, and you get a pretty win- good, a strong window into that. But ultimately, we see the absolute limitations of a relationship between humans and aliens in this story. I guess that's the sociological cornerstone, but I do think that the question here theologically of what an immortal energy race might think of as the afterlife is kind of fascinating. I don't know of anyone else who, who did this. Now, the story also has ramifications for biomedical ethics. Now, this is not going to be a real issue, I suppose, the morality of plasma beings coming into conflict with our own, but we often do face divergent morality between a patient and doctor in much more mundane issues, whether it's uh, abortion. I'm right now reading um, The American Tragedy by Theodore um, Dreiser, and they're uh, a woman, young woman, goes to a doctor for an abortion. At that point, abortion's illegal, and the doctor refuses to do it on moral grounds, right? So there's that moral conflict. But there's also the basic, do we extend life? Do we intervene to save life? These are moral questions that are, of course, at the heart of biomedical ethics um, and often involve real conflicts of values between patients and doctors. The occasional high-profile case show that even the question of the afterlife informs how patients and doctors make decisions about treatment and end-of-life care. To give you an example from another culture, in China, traditional classical China, to you know to be dismembered meant to be dismembered in the afterlife. So if you were actually to lose body parts in this world, you will not have them in the afterlife. This is why if you were to be executed, being strangled was usually, like if someone was, was sentenced to be beheaded, a judge to show leniency may reduce the sentence to strangling. Well, it seems at the end of the day, strangling might even be worse than getting your head cut off from the just pain and suffering angle. But it was considered a better punishment because you would keep your head in the afterlife. It wouldn't be detached. And this is also why death by slicing, where the victim would be cut repeatedly, um, hopefully extending their suffering as long as possible, and dismembered, slowly dismembered while still alive, this was the ultimate punishment, in part because it, it deprived them of any meaningful afterlife. So, 
there are there are a lot of interesting questions about how the afterlife inform our morale, our concept of the of the afterlife inform our morality and how we interact with people and how we make our moral choices, right? To the end, the approximations believe that they were right in experimenting on Ratavara's brain. They see themselves as being unfairly punished for making the right choice. By showing the horror of the experience for Ratavara, Dick seems to suggest the errors of arrogance in medical experimentation. The proximans are not presented here as the right ones. They're actually bringing a lot of suffering to this woman who did nothing but, you know, face an accident. Now, he is a bit narrow-minded in how he presents Christianity, and this is the common problem, I guess, in his work. He tends to see Christianity is very homogenous. He almost never mentions Islam. Eastern religions are given some more attention, but not nearly enough, and not always taken very seriously. I'm thinking here of Faith of Our Fathers or The Man in the High Castle, stories uh, no, the black box too. These are stories that incorporate non-Western religions into them, but he doesn't really explore the theological consequences of these outside of like a few Zen jokes. Um, now here we read with a bit of disbelief when the beings from Proxima point out that all earth beings are Christian. Why would this be? Why is Christianity the gold standard for religious speculation in his works? Um, now, it's still the majority population. Uh, most believers, most religious people are Christian, I suppose, the largest population. I, I actually mean the largest chunk, the plurality of people are Christian on, on earth, but other religions are faster growing. And science fiction, I guess, until recent years has had a bit, a bit of a blind spot on non-Western religions, and that's too bad. Um, but here we do have a pretty good story looking at a, a case study of, of two cultures, two religions interacting. So, but still, what we get a lot of in Dick's later career are, are religious speculations and theology. But that's, that's what it is. Um, now, we just really, at the heart of this is this very clever point about Christianity and religion and, and the afterlife and how, how we view our own existence shaping how we view the afterlife and then the afterlife affecting how we act morally in this world. And I think that's the heart of, of this. It's a rather interesting story. It's, it's, it's a good one. Um, so anyways, that does it. Thanks, uh, as always, for listening. And um, yeah, I guess that's it. Um, I'll be back next time. Well, next time we'll have to, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to novels. Um, it's been a while since we looked at a, a novel. Although he, had, he didn't punch much between A Scanner Darkly and, and now, 1981. You know, he just published a handful of short stories. So it's not been that long since we looked at A Scanner Darkly. But it's time to return to some novels, specifically... Uh, the first two novels of the Vallis trilogy, Vallis, V-A-L-I-S, and The Divine Invasion. And then after that, we'll come back with the, the, the last remaining short story written by Philip K. Dick, An Alien Mind, the last one published during his lifetime, uh, before going to his final novel, the final novel he, he wrote in his lifetime, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. So we're getting towards the end. I haven't yet made a decision on the posthumous published novels. I will do Radio Free Albemuth. But the mainstream novels I haven't yet decided. Um, I should do Nate, Nick and the Glimmung, which is a children's book. But we'll see um, what I'm going to do with those, those, those mainstream novels he wrote in the, the late 50s and, and 
yeah, mostly mostly wrote those in the fifties. So uh, maybe I'll do an, uh, kind of a, an add-on series later on. But anyways, back to novels. Uh, first Valis and then The Divine Invasion. So I'll have my thoughts about those shortly. So as always, thanks for listening. If you're reading along, you can just open and jump into Valis and, and start examining it and, and, and start thinking about your views of, of that, of course, well-known and, and influential of his novels. So again, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. And, uh, oh, if you want to contact me, please do. You can reach me at 100pagescast at gmail.com if you want to send me an email. So thanks. See you next time.